podcast, your weekly fix of news and interviews for the energy, infrastructure and project finance market. I'm Tom Nelthorpe, a contributing editor based in Northern England. Um, Thanks so much for listening today. If this is your first time tuning in, then please let us know what you think. We can be reached at team at proximoinfra.com. And if you like what you hear, you can subscribe to us through Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Podmean, among many others. the last few weeks have given us a stark reminder of the effects that political upheavals can have on energy and infrastructure investments. That the current conflict in Ukraine uh, might present some long-term opportunities to rewire the world's energy networks. And um, you can read about the Atlantic Basin LNG market, for instance, how that might evolve in our most recent weekly newsletter. But in general, I think the story has so far been about the vulnerability of energy and infrastructure to war, um, expropriation, and um, possibly voluntary or semi-voluntary divestment um, and sanctions. Um, So it's a very good moment, I I think, for us to look at um, how political risk manifests itself, um, how it pops up perhaps when you least expect it, uh, and what steps uh, people can make to uh, mitigate some of these risks. The the political risk insurance market is, I should think, at least 30 years old, and it's been around for as long as I've been covering the market. Um, And we've seen um, several ups and downs and phases. And, and alongside all that, we've seen an evolution of how that market has um, has sort of evolved and you know, worked to uh, meet the needs of debt and equity investors in, in energy and infrastructure markets. So um, I'm um, extremely honored to, to be joined this week by uh, Daniel Ridden. He's Global Head of Political Risk and Credit at Vantage. Um, Dan is a, 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 has enormous um, depth of experience in political risk um, at a variety of private sector institutions. Um, going back, I should think, pretty much um, as long as um, people have been thinking about this. So, um, Dan, th- first of all, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, you're most welcome, Tom. Glad to be here. Um, so let's 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 talk in briefly about the situation as we um, uh, as we see it right now. What in general has the current environment meant for the volume of of inquiries uh, and maybe policies being written in political risk insurance? Are we pretty much in you know claims processing territory at the moment? Sure, Tom. So, Tom, you know that uh, I have been in the business for over thirty years, right? So, I started out in the government uh, at OPIC, um, then spent some years uh, in the private sector. Um, most recently, now at Vantage Risk. Um, And we're a new player, right? So I can give the perspective, historical perspective, but also as a new player, you know, with some significant talent and expertise in the area and also, you know, strong financial backing. I will tell you, you know, it's been good timing for us to get into the market. So we actually entered uh, mid mid last year. Um, We saw a lot of uh, interest quickly. Um, in us. And we saw quite a bit of, um, you know, interest because I think things were starting to kind of come apart, um, particularly with uh, Eastern Europe, Russia and Ukraine. Um, But I think in general, you know, coming on the heels of COVID uh, and, you know, and and all of the, um, you know, all of the, the issues that were presented to a lot of emerging markets with COVID, we did see quite a bit of interest uh, from our core customers who are infrastructure investors and the banks that support them and also the multilaterals, ECAs and DFIs who are in the mix. So um, uh, the way I, one of the ways I look at it is I, I look at it as, um, you know, the the uh, the volume is definitely increased and the number of policies written, I th- believe, is increasing generally in the market. Because I think we're on the in an interesting time where we've had almost back-to-back black swans, right? So 
COVID, um, you know, just just shut down everything, but a lot continued, a lot had to be maintained, a lot of projects continued, um, and so they they needed to work through the issues surrounding COVID, and then and then the latest Black Swan, uh, which I think is is really you know something that was apparent, something that was there. But uh, very few anticipated the Russians actually going in uh, on such a large scale on the invasion in Ukraine. And so I do think those two um, have heightened interest of risk, heightened interest of political risk um, and, um, and, and, you know, and credit risk in, a, in effect, which is very intertwined in the emerging markets. So, um, you know, 2021 and 2022, the 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 two years that we're overlapping as a, as a new company, uh, Vantage, we, um, you know, we're in the middle of it and we're seeing pretty significant increases. So we're actually planning for uh, increased staff, growing our business maybe faster than we thought, um, honestly, um, because of the demand uh, that is there. It's, yeah, it's, it's interesting you talk about, about black swans because I think by this stage we're starting to forget what, what white swans look like almost. Yes. Um, but but I, to, to, before we, we sort of move on to the current situation, how in particular did 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 COVID have an effect on the on, on the PRI market? Was it simply that it started stressing um, governments, and therefore you know, governments took some um, actions and, and possibly that would fall under um, political risk? Or was it was it more just with defaults um, potentially coming that those would um, that those would maybe trigger um, some sort of political risks? Well, COVID had such an impact, you know, on the global economy, right? So certainly commodities, um, you know, people stopped driving, they stopped traveling, they stopped going places. Uh, there was, there was, um, you know, quite a bit of emphasis on uh, redirection of capital towards health, healthcare, uh, vaccines, and things of that nature. So it, it you know, caused, uh, or it was partly responsible for very significant supply chain issues. And I think that that definitely caused an impact on infrastructure and energy and, and other sectors. Um, we saw it and we saw a lot of heightened awareness of risk uh, among those we call clients and, and customers. And and so let's look now at the, at the types of risk. I mean, my, my impression of the last sort of 10, 15 years in, in the market is that we saw this sort of, evolution of, of political risks from um, what we're going to call um, the slightly slightly blunt risks, so war, expropriation, someone sending in guys with guns to take over your your, your assets, to this increased interest in non-contract honoring, inability to, to get an arbitration award, things that looked a lot more like, I don't know, lawfare than, than warfare. Now, of course, we're having a situation where, you know, we are talking about men with guns. Um, has that, you know, has that maybe caused people to reevaluate um, what sort of risks they're most worried about? Are you seeing a lot more what I'm going to call, and, and again, correct me on any of this, Dan, what I'm going to call classic political risk? Are you seeing a bit of a return to, to people's interest in those? Yeah, it's 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 an interesting time, Tom. You know, there were there were some um, years I remember in the early two thousands where, you know, I was reading some headlines and some articles about political risk no longer exists. Right? Um, you know, the there is no more political risk, uh, largely because of multilateralism and efforts to you know, develop commercial codes that were consistent across the globe, uh, and it was a, a you know, relatively peaceful time. 
um, you know, that's that's changed uh, pretty dramatically. And certainly, uh, you know, in, in historical context, um, you know, with with Europe and Eastern Europe right now, um, you know, we have a situation we haven't seen in maybe 50 years uh, or more, you know, so it, it's it's really changed fairly dramatically. And the traditional political risk insurance covers that you mentioned, expropriation, political violence, currency and convertibility, right? They're, they're back. Um, the, the interest level in them is back. Um, there'll still be need for innovation, I think, uh, because things do change. But those core elements of political risk insurance that are really um, you know, valued by corporates who have operations in a variety of different markets, maybe 10, 20, 50 around the world, and try to cover those through, uh, through multi-country political risk insurance policies. And then sing- single situation risks in different markets where a company is uh, really extending uh, quite a bit of assets and capital into a market for a long-term uh, investment project, um, those are back. And, and we're seeing uh, renewed interest uh, in those, those type of policies because it had really shifted more towards, I would say, kind of a blended non-payment credit insurance. You mentioned non-honoring or contract frustration, right? It really, the market had shifted away from traditional political risk into these areas. I'd say it's it's definitely back. And I think, uh, you know, it will benefit those, uh, those, uh, those uh, astute customers who kind of kept their eye on the ball in terms of the risks um, that were developing and now have been developing. We don't know where this situation will lead in time, but I do think those who are covered against political risk will see the benefits of that um, in the um, in the months and years to come. And, and it's interesting, you, you talked talk briefly there about the, um, uh, I, I don't know whether it's a, the increasing overlap between political risk insurance and, and credit insurance. I think both fall within your, um, your responsibility, so I hope you don't mind me do. asking mm-hmm. the question. Credit insurance has been one of those very big booms in, in infrastructure finance over the last I don't know, four, maybe four to five years. What does an increased focus on on you know political risks do to that to that overlap? Does that mean that credit insurers start looking at PRI more carefully? Do you think there's a boom in standalone PRI policies? What's your feeling about how that relationship evolves? I mean, I think I think for the for the international corporate um, multinational company, political risk will will still be um, quite important, right? Um, I think for projects where you have both equity and debt, you really need both. In, in a sense, you may need both um, in, for for those some of the some of the larger projects. Partly because um, you know, so first of all, in the multi-country, it's really covering the assets that a company has in in country and accounting for those assets and uh, as part of a, as part of their concerns about changing conditions in a market that could impact expropriation could impact currency and convertibility or you know war revolution insurrection um, not covered generally by their property policies but I'd say on the other single situations we you know where there is a large project that's both debt and equity um, you know there there is political risk cover that could be used to cover the equity but the debt is an important component and that debt often is guaranteed by the Ministry of Finance in a different emerging market economy right so so you have this hybrid, uh, of non-honoring type coverage uh, that is both credit and 
political risk. And I think, you know, that that's been the key for really allowing a lot of investors to successfully move into the emerging markets on a sustainable basis. Uh, okay. Now let's, let's look a little bit about, and I've, I've phrased, phrased this, the, 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 I'm going to phrase this question as, as um, what new products or new, um, new risks people are going to be looking at in the future, maybe as, as a result of current events, but I could, I could slightly less charitably turn it on its head and, and say, has the current situation caused anyone to realize that there were some risks they were dramatically under scrutinizing or under um, potentially under pricing? Yeah. I mean, one of the things I'd say, Tom, to begin with that is, you know, we find, and there's studies have shown in the political risk insurance market that only about 10% of companies actually are covering um, themselves against political risk in different markets around the world, right? So I think we'll see a spike of interest. We'll see if that, you know, results in a spike of policies. Um, I think we'll see somewhere somewhere in the middle there um, because the, the spike is continuing. But most companies are uninsured, right? And I think one of the, one of the things that you know, we'll see most apparent, I think, is a lot of interest among boards, a lot of interest among directors, right, uh, on how on how they're mitigating risks. And there's a variety of ways to mit- mitigate risk, political risk, insurance and, and, and credit insurance are certainly some of those ways. But, you know, my hope is that awareness is created that, you know, companies are more risk aware, certainly not risk averse, because there's still a lot of opportunities in different markets. But risk awareness is really assessing, you know, what your vulnerabilities are for a variety of different risks. Um, those could include political and credit, could include quite a few others. Um, and I do think we'll see that rising um, in, in, the, in the coming months ahead. We're already seeing it. Um, and, um, you know, I think that I think it's important because I do think there's complacency at times, um, you know, even even with those who are purchasing these policies. Right. There's a need to keep them fresh, to keep them current, to make sure that, you know, the, the there's there's a good list of all of the exposures, that those are current, that the valuations are current. Um, and I think that's you know something a lot of companies are doing now as they as they look look towards a period of of some significant instability and, and, and thanks and, and, and again i'm gonna hopefully i'm not steering too close to, to any sort of live issues but but to, to what extent do sanctions regimes if at all um ever feed into um uh sort of the workings of, of the pri market are they are they something that's kept completely different or do they sort of overlap with these considerations sometimes no it's a very it's a very legitimate point tom um sanctions and and we've had sanctions for many years right so those of us in the industry when we're looking at new risk when we're looking at new obligors new new clients you know we do quite a bit of scanning for sanction sanctions right and there's sanctions we look at in the US and the UK UN EU elsewhere um, those are only increasing and when you've seen the volume of sanctions that are coming out as a result of um, uh, the invasion of Ukraine, um, it's, uh, it's highly significant. Uh, it does call into question, you know, are companies fully covered? Is there, you know, are sanctions covered as, as part of 
these type of policies uh, or does there some innovation necessary? Um, the interesting thing too, you know, for us in the political risk insurance market is is seeing other industries, aviation and, and others you know, that are impacted by sanctions that are impacted by war. Uh, and uh, you, you see that in aviation and marine and other areas. I think our business in political risk insurance is so focused on infrastructure, so focused on infrastructure-related investments in emerging markets, um, you know, that it's more project risk as opposed to uh, other other forms that, um, you know, I think, I think it's just going to be very interesting uh, to follow. But sanctions will involve a lot of time. There will be a lot of lawyers involved in looking at sanctions and the new sanctions. There are a lot of companies who are who are focused on you know the meaning of these sanctions, and it is it's not easy because they keep changing, they keep increasing, um, and it does take um, probably a lot of a lot of companies and law firms are trying to catch their breath with the uh, the volume of sanctions that are coming out. And I mean, do do you think I mean one thing that that uh, and I think one interesting parallel between between COVID and now was that COVID had everyone scrambling. To look at their material adverse change clauses and, and look at their their loan documentation to see how an unprecedented event unprecedented event um, could have been captured in documentation. Is there likely to be any of that kind of scrutiny of, of agreements? Are the lawyers going to have to get very creative, or is this what we'll call sort of ordinary course of business legal bills that people are going to going to run up? Yeah, well, so I I see I think you see the aviation situation in Russia right now there's 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 a lot of focus on on that you know because of the aircraft and the leasing companies uh, who are trying to repossess aircraft right so I think that's just one example I think it calls you know it, it will involve a lot of activities um, of, of lawyers uh, of companies uh, looking at you know that situation and it is a changing situation too because we are we are still at a relatively early stage on the developments of this um, this horrible situation with Russia and Ukraine, um, and I think that will continue for some time. But I, I do think there'll be a lot of attention. There should be, I think, you know, our advice, uh, you know, with any policyholders who may be involved with us or others in the market uh, for political risk is. Make sure that you pull that policy out. Take a look. Look at your responsibilities. Make sure that you're engaged with your broker, right? And and uh, you know, stay engaged with your insurer as well. We want to provide the best claims service in the event that there are claims that develop, and the best way to do that is to be communicating. And, and where I mean, where do you feel this might um, this might sit in the sort of continuum of of big? Um, sort of clusters of political risk events. I'm, fr- from my point of view, um, I, I, you know, I'm old enough to remember the the sort of the wave of nationalizations in Venezuela, which was an act of time. Before that, there was what happened in Asia, but I was very, very, very young when that was the the aftermath of that. And I, I guess, and possibly there were the events that shook um, North Africa and the Middle Middle East, maybe for the, the Arab Spring. But what um, what playbook, if any, is there for, for dealing with a large volume of of political risk um, claims? Um, you know that, that we might be seeing here, sure. or, or is, it, is it a bit early to be trying to quantify this? Well, in, in you know, in the not too distant past, we we saw quite a few claims in the industry in Ukraine. Right. So 
2008-2009, during the global financial crisis, uh, we saw impact on lending, uh, Ukrainian banks, um, and uh, there was some loss, there was some significant loss activity there for many underwriters uh, in, in our market. Um, in 2014, uh, you know, with the invasion at that time and uh, the conquest of uh, Crimea and the Donbass region um, and parts of the Donbass region, you know, we saw the kind of the early stages of where we are now, in, in effect. And there were um, there were some political violence losses. There were there were other losses. So um, so Ukraine is not new. For us in the market, I would say the parallels, though it's much larger. This is this is much larger. It's it's uh, and it's more all-encompassing. Um, I I'd say the last time we saw very significant losses probably was in that 2008 2009, the result of the global financial crisis and the impact that had on many financings of trade and investment. Um, and you know, prior to that 9/11, um, you know, uh, the Asian financial crisis. Uh, when you were a young lad, uh, that you know, I still remember that there were definitely impacts on, on losses then. But there have been a series of crises in Brazil and Russia and elsewhere over the years that uh, you know we don't go that long with complacency in our business. Uh, we're we're always we're always focused on making sure we have the best information when we're underwriting. That we are you know working with with clients uh, um, who are transparent about their situation, what they're looking for us to provide. And I think, you know, that that really matters. Um, but we're always prepared to see claims activity. There are lulls. Uh, I would expect we'll see more claims activity developing as a result of the invasion of Ukraine, um, you know, because it has impacted that that economy and, and will be impacting other economies as a, as a result of this situation. And, and I, I, Dan, I imagine you're much too polite to say, I told you so when a client comes to you and says, oh, you know, we should have paid more attention to these risks, maybe. Um, but but just in general, uh, as a sort of in general, I told you so, do you, do you feel that people should have paid more attention to, to some of the risks lurking in there? Or, or do you think, you know, most of these large corporates, they take a view on what they think they can, they can stomach from these big events and decide whether it's worth insuring against yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't be wagging my finger at anyone. I think that I actually think most of the the sponsors, lenders, kind of in the infrastructure world, um, know these know these risks, are accustomed to them, have seen you know the ups and downs that have occurred over the years. Um, you know, and the, the history of political risk, I think, really took effort. Uh, took off after World War II, where you had all that devastation from World War II. You had currency crises. You had the the results of that political violence, uh, and then and then you had the the new investors coming in who wanted to protect themselves against expropriations, potentially with new governments and maybe left leaning governments coming in who who might want to take take the assets back. I think I think they've 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 walked through all of that. I do think there's a more educated group of um, lenders and sponsors. Um, I, I do think complacency 
though, um, since since you know this this type of an insurance product is not a must buy, it's not a regulatory driven. Typically, um, you know, it, it could fall off, uh, and you could be underinsured. So I, I mentioned, you know, that figure like ninety percent are uninsured for political risks, right? So I do think that there's certainly room to grow. Um, that's our biggest competitor, actually, as we look at it as as a new market coming in, not to try to compete with the likes of the the now leaders in the political risk market, but really look at those uninsureds that are out there uh, or those underinsureds that are out there. And I do think there's more that can be done. What I have found in you know my career as as in risk management as a as an underwriter, as I've found more companies now are more focused on holistic approaches to risk, uh, enterprise risk management, if you will, throughout their companies and political risk um, and pandemics and other things, weather related and climate are part of the mix of risks that are looked at rather than just taking, you know, what's in what's on the front page of the paper that day. Right. It's more of a holistic approach. And there's a lot of there's a lot of testing of those hypotheses within companies that go on with senior leaders. And I think that's a good thing um, to to be able to you know focus, focus on that and to focus on all of the risks that, that could be there, not to the point where they freeze from those risks, but they become aware of the risks. Again, risk aware versus risk averse, I think, is is the most important thing. Uh, thanks, Anna. We'll have one last um, fairly fairly broad question about some of the contours of the, the political risk insurance market. I guess in, in particular, um, liquidity and particularly liquidity at, at various um, tenors. And, and I think, again, the last 10, 15 years, we've seen a, a, a much um, it's sort of big lengthening in the in the you know, length of policies on offer, um, mm-hmm. but we've also seen um, perhaps an evolution of the um, the types of participants in the PRR market in general, particularly DFIs and, and ECAs. Um, maybe not for strict political risk insurance, but should we say um, products that you know, promise to cover up some of the cover off some of those risks? Um, and these DFIs and ECAs have have been a little bit distracted sometimes by home market issues. What's your feeling about the sort of the depth of the market for particularly, I guess, long dated infrastructure investments? Do you think that, um, you know, people are going to going to struggle getting getting sufficient cover? Um, or, or do you think there's a you know, there's a there's a pretty decent um, number of investors that are looking for these kind of exposures? Yeah. So there are a lot of investors that are looking for longer tenor exposures, particularly if you're talking about infrastructure. Um we, as a new player, came in with a 15-year capacity, right? So we can write risks up to 15 years. And that was by design, Tom, because we want to be aligned with those customers who are involved in infrastructure, in emerging markets. Um, we also want to be aligned with who those that we see as partners. And we do see the the MLAs, the DFIs, and the ECAs as partners. Um, they are increasingly looking to the private insurance market in, for partnership because they are also looking at diversifying their portfolio, managing their aggregations like we are as a, as a private insurer. So that partnership that's developed public and private um, uh, is, I think, a future expansion of the market will allow us all to grow. And um, we like working with the ECAs. We like working with the DFIs. Uh, and we found them as good partners already with our business. Um, about uh, 40% of our business uh, in our less than one year in, in business uh, is is with the DFI and the ECA um, and the MDB community. Uh, thanks, Anne. So you, you, do you reckon you're going to be pretty busy over the next uh, the next 12 months? 
Absolutely, absolutely. So I, you know, I had a broker who just offered to take some of us on a fact-finding trip, and I had to tell him no, which is hard for us, right? Because we work with brokers, uh, we love our brokers, um, but I had to say no because um, we have so much activity. There's so much submission activity coming in. Uh, there's this is a time for us, I think, as an industry, to be available, to be um, you know out in front. Uh, in providing our risk solutions. And so, um, uh, no, 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 we'll be hunkering down. I have, have an office here in Alexandria, Virginia. Um, we're all in the office, which is great. Uh, and uh, we will continue to be here uh, to serve our customers. Well, Dan Redden, thank you very much. Um, that's all um, for this week from the Proximo podcast. Thanks for listening. As a reminder, again, um, you can subscribe to us through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and whatever other podcasting platforms you happen to be attached to. Um, but for now, um, thanks very much, and enjoy the rest of your week. Bye.